afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 20th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I serve as the host for these discussions. We are streaming live on YouTube. The link to this discussion can be found at the Scott Knowles YouTube channel, or you can email me or find me on Twitter at US of Disaster. Please do help spread the word about the COVID calls and send your suggestions for guests and topics. I've gotten some great suggestions. Please keep those coming in. Also, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to the soundcloud.com website and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. On Monday, we have Drexel University public health researcher Esther Chernak. Esther was a guest on COVID calls in the first week, uh, and she's going to uh, come in on Monday and give us an update of how things are going nationally with a focus on Philadelphia. And I'm also really happy to announce that we'll have Howard Conrother um, on Monday. Howard is the co-director of the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Process Center. He's been doing um, risk analysis uh, for uh, since the 1960s. He's a tremendous expert in this area. And he has a recent article in Politico with Paul Slovic titled, What the Coronavirus Curve Teaches Us About Climate Change. So you will want to join that discussion on Monday. As of today, there are 1,677,256 cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. This is up from 1,579,690 cases yesterday. 486,994 of those cases are in the United States, up from 451,491 yesterday. There are now a total of 18,022 deaths reported in the United States, up from 15,938 yesterday. There are also 27,612 reported survivors of COVID-19 in the United States. I have been asked frequently in these last months, as I know my historian colleagues have also been asked, what does history teach us that prepares us for COVID-19? It's a question that historians simultaneously crave because, well, people remember that we exist, but we dread it in another way, and here's why. Think of the challenge we all face in getting the story of this pandemic Every, every day, the one that we're living through. I quote the numbers at the beginning of every one of the COVID calls, but behind each number, there's a person, a life, and there's a story behind the numbers, the lives of those who collect the numbers and who make those available, complexities upon complexities, stories upon stories. Certainly the story of Trump in these days, or Dr. Fauci, certainly, will also appear in the history books of the future, but tracing out those millions of other stories, that's gonna take some dedication time and creativity. Now, map that back in time with no social media, no 24-hour news, scanty government reporting at times, imperfect archives, and lots and lots of gaps. So you can see why historians thrill at the chance to explain the past and then blanch a bit when we realize that we can rarely, if ever, deliver concrete lessons. And even if we did, people will receive those lessons differently depending on their own place in this world. But we do it, I do it, because I love it, because I believe that those historical gaps, those missing or muted voices, they deserve to be heard. And hearing them, even if they're faint, 
may very well make our lives better, or so we hope. So I've brought a couple of historians on COVID calls today, maybe to commiserate with me a little bit on the role of the historian in the pandemic, and also to enlighten us from their own research in the history of disaster. Two very talented historians on COVID calls today. Let me introduce them now. Jacob Remus is a clinical associate professor of history at New York University's Gallatin School of Individualized Study, where he directs the nascent initiative for critical disaster studies. He is the author of the absolutely essential book, Disaster Citizenship, Survivors, Solidarity, and Power in the Progressive Era. And he's a co-editor with Andy Horowitz of the forthcoming Critical Disaster Studies, New Perspectives on Disaster, Vulnerability, Resilience, and Risk. My second guest is Julia Engelschalt. She is currently a doctoral candidate in history at Bielefeld University in Germany, and she's working on a dissertation project titled Climates, Contagion, and Comparison. American Medicine Between Colonial Warfare and the New Public Health, 1898 to 1925. Welcome, Julia. Welcome, Jacob. Thank you for making time to come on the COVID calls. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So I'd like to remind everyone, please ask questions in the YouTube live chat. And those questions will get to me throughout the conversation. Or you can tweet the questions. People have been doing that successfully this week. Just be sure to tag at US of Disaster to get your questions in. So let's get started. Julia, thank you for staying up uh, late and joining us from Germany. How are things there where you are? You're in Bielefeld, is that right? Exactly, yeah. Um, I'm not a native of Bielefeld. My family are in Berlin. Um, Bielefeld, as probably a lot of people don't know, it has about 340,000 uh, inhabitants uh, to this day and uh, is located in the northwest of Germany, sort of halfway between Hanover and Cologne, you could say. Um, and it's quiet, uh, not very surprisingly. Um, we do not have a complete shutdown um, throughout Germany, although we are a federal system, we have a federal system, and um, certain federal states have declared sort of the lockdown. Um, North Rhine-Westphalia, which is the federal state that people have in, um, has not done that. Um, however, you know, just my very limited uh, perception of things, because I don't really uh, go out these days uh, all that much, is that, um, you know, it's, well, grocery stores are open, but, um, you know, except for essential stores, uh, pretty much everything has been closed. Um, you could, we have almost perfect weather. These have had it actually for a couple of weeks. So people are outside in, we're allowed to go out on our own or in groups of two people or households, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, so whenever I take a walk or I meet with other uh, self-isolating people that I feel safe around, um, you know, parks are relatively crowded, but within the, the limits of social distancing. Um, that's about as much as I can tell you. If you want to hear numbers, I can give you those because I looked them up. Um, we're faring significantly better than the US at this point. That's as much as I can tell. What's the, do you have the, the um, death totals at this point for Germany? I do. Um, yes, yeah, so, so today, this morning, I looked it up. Um, we were at 113,000 plus people who have been tested positive. Hmm. And uh, that's 5,300 more than yesterday. Um, and out of those, 2,400 deaths. 
that's a plus of 266 as compared to yesterday. And I have to say the numbers are somewhat lower than the ones you probably have from the Johns Hopkins uh, unit, mm -hmm. because we use our own, you know, we don't trust American numbers, so we have our own um, <laughs> registration system in place that's centralized at the Robert Koch Institute in Berlin. Um, that's responsible for crisis management. I don't want to necessarily ask you to answer for all Germans, but I'm about to. Uh, how is the public perceiving the government response at this moment? Uh, again, uh, this is a very, very limited perspective because I'm, you know, um, sort of privileged in, in my academic, um, largely educated uh, bubble, if you will. Um, but my impression is, let me you know, let me try and be all diplomatic about it, which is not my strong suit. Um, but you know, demand for um, scientific knowledge and expertise and other expertise, I should say, is from my point of view is surprisingly high um, within the public. But also, and I think that's kind of the difference to the United States. It's part and parcel of government and policy making strategies. Um, so, you know, that's not to say that there's, you know, a united consensus on, on all issues pertaining to, to COVID-19. Um, there are discussions going on, of course, there is debate about how, you know, how useful certain measures and emergency uh, plans are. But in general, my feeling is that, you know, it's not a matter of the opposition or, you know, um, other societal actors bringing demand for knowledge and for information to the government, but it's actually integrated in that. Mm. Well, thank you for those insights. Jacob, let me come to you. Uh, you're based in, in New York, but you're not in New York right now. I believe you're in Connecticut. Is that right? Yes, I'm one of the uh, New Yorkers who have probably read about in various articles who went to... Uh, practice social distancing out in the country. So I am in mm -hmm. rural Northwest Connecticut, um, where uh, even on days when it, today it spent the day hailing, but even on days when it's <laughs> not uh, precipitating, it's very easy not to see anyone um, all day or just sort of be very far from people. It feels um, uh, much, much like it, much like Litchfield County always does, which is to say like rural New England, uh, there are definitely more New York license plates than usual. This is mm -hmm. a, um, it's a it's a common vacation place uh, uh, for for New Yorkers. Um, I just looked it up. There are about I've lost it. Uh, there are 315 confirmed cases in Litchfield County, which is a county with about 180,000 people. Mm. Um, no big cities, mm. um, and there have been 13 deaths. Uh, those. Uh, but that's also, it's clearly very early in the curve here. There are still, there are no recovered cases. There are still mm -hmm. 302 active cases. So we can expect that to um, get worse. Uh, but also it is a place where even, um, even during ordinary times, you kind of have to try not to be distant from people, mm -hmm. uh, which is why I am here, which is why it's a, um, it's a it's a place where people want to be at times like this because uh, because you can do that. Is NYU completely closed down, or they still have uh, staff, grounds people coming in? What's the situation there? Uh, so uh, they still have some essential workers coming in. The they have, I believe, one dorm open for the people who mm -hmm. uh, would otherwise have been homeless, and mm -hmm. and those people are being fed in some way. Um, the uh, 
the build the classroom buildings and library all the academic buildings are closed off such that even our id cards would not let us in um and uh, of course nyu also has uh, in addition to dorms for students uh there's also a lot of we, uh, many of us live in faculty essentially in faculty dorms in faculty housing and um those are all still still active although i'm told that they are that they're kind of largely emptied out as people like mm. me have have gone to try to be in other places which on one hand is obviously a great active privilege that i have to be able to do this it also is decreasing density in tall buildings so i live in a building that ordinarily to just to leave i would have to be on an air, in a small elevator for 26 floors for for a few minutes mm. and so kind of each each family that leaves uh is actually making at least this is what I'm telling myself, is actually making it safer for everyone who is staying. Yeah, no, well, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I'm thinking about Litchfield County and places like that. And we've been waiting for the sort of rural story to be told, but the rural story in the American media is often framed as rural Kansas. And the reality is there's rural New York State, there's rural Connecticut, there's rural New Jersey. Um, you know, I, I think the those numbers, I'm glad that you both gave me those those numbers to think about. and even though the population density may be low, there might be only one grocery store. There might be only one of anything that's needed. So there still might be a lot of density yeah. in certain important nodes. Have you noted that? So there, so, so the part of this being, um, part of the history of Litchfield County is that it actually, it, uh, 200-ish years ago, it was actually an industrial area. Uh, it's, it's where a lot of the iron uh, that was turned into uh, cannons and guns in the Revolutionary War came from. Uh, and so there are these various small towns, each of which have a grocery store, each of which have a little bit of infrastructure. There's not a lot of hospitals, um, but in fact, I, I haven't actually looked it up, but, I'm, but I believe that there's actually a, a, a relatively higher uh, number of ICU beds per population um, than, than there are in many cities, just because there aren't very many people here. Mm. Um, so yes, there's certainly nodes that come in, and when you go into town, you see um, the the churches are closed. They all have signs up about worshiping online. the The libraries are closed. Um, the The grocery stores are open and seem to be doing a, a very when not when we have gone on our weekly grocery shopping are doing a very good job of trying mm -hmm. to enforce distancing, uh, having masks. Um, it's a, they've all put up the plexiglass uh, in front of the in front of the cashiers. Um, the biggest grocery store is unionized, and so I kind of feel more comfortable knowing that workers there are more likely to have uh, sick, be able to take sick days, or have a voice at work to be able to demand um, more safety equipment and more shields for themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, plus, it's actually a larger store, so I'm I'm more able to navigate it without uh, running into other people. Mm -hmm. All right, well, thank you for that update from uh, rural Connecticut. And that's about as much of the present as any of the three of us can probably stand to talk about. So let's talk about the past. Uh, Julie, I'd like to start with you. Um, really want to know about your dissertation project. Um, just dive in, tell us the kinds of historical puzzles you're working on. And, and if you can, how those connect up for you to some of the things you're seeing happening right now. All right, okay. So first of all, I think what I have to emphasize is that I'm not technically, I didn't, or at least I didn't start out being a disaster researcher um, of any kind. Um, but as it happens over the none, last- None of us did. 
almost <laughs> not there isn't it's not a thing i mean it's a thing now but it wasn't before <laughs> um so but i, I guess a, a lot of the things that i work on over the last couple of months i should say even before covid 19 but of course over the last few weeks that has sort of um you know um, been catalyzed a lot of the things that I do have to do with public health crisis management. And I feel that the rhetoric of crisis is becoming more and more intriguing to me, um, both you know, generally in, in history, but also like in, in, in the actual work that I do. So I want to start out maybe with two um, basic observations that kind of sparked my interest. And that's where my project kind of uh, comes from. The first one, very generally, um, is the Sort of standard narrative of bacteriology, laboratory bacteriology rising in the mid 19th century, that um, is commonly, at least in the history of medicine, um, perceived as having erased most of, if not all, previous theories of disease causation, and um, among them, climate, which is what I'm interested in. Um, and at the same time, or say another observation that struck my interest was that climatic determinism is actually extremely salient, um, especially in US American medicine and science at large in the early 20th century. So well after the emergence of germ theory. And, um, and that's kind of how my argument came about, which is that um, American interest in climate has a lot to do and is fueled to a large extent by um, US um, American overseas colonialism, which starts in 1898 with the with victory of the United States in the Spanish-American War um, and uh, the acquisition of, among others, Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and somewhat later and with a different legal status, um, I've also added Panama to my, to my project. Um, and so I look at two things, essentially. I look at how the American tropics are constructed um, in American colonial medical research and public health interventions in the colonies. Um, and, I, and then I take that back home, so to speak, you know, not my home, but your home, um, to, to the continental United States. And I look at how that colonial knowledge um, was transferred and adapted to the domestic context. Um, and particularly in that context, I'm interested in how the American South, which had a tradition of being perceived as diseased and backwards and also, you know, climatically different, um, how that space of the American South was sort of re-tropicalized, if you will, or mm. how that tropical discourse is, is um, reinvigorated through um, medical research and public health reform in the early 20th century. So, again, I, I don't specifically deal with pandemics either, I should say, um, but with responses to relatively contained outbreaks, mostly because, you know, the colonial ones happen on islands and can be largely contained by implementing quarantine, etc. Um, but um, since you asked uh, for, for, you know, perhaps a specific case, right now I'm very much interested in um, mainland continental public health as it pertains to pellagra, a largely forgotten disease, I get the feeling, although it's quite horrifying actually, and it flares up in, in, uh, in the early 1900s um, in the rural south in, you know, it's a disease associated with poverty, and by that I mean extreme, like poverty, poverty, mm. um, and it, it has a horrifying look to it, and it creates, like it has this um, 
red rash uh, on patients' faces that looks like a butterfly, which is why it's called a butterfly disease. Hmm. And um, a lot of things are not known. It's, an, it's a new disease to the United States in the early 20th century. So there's a lot of non-knowledge and uncertainty going on there. Um, causation is not clear. Uh, based on bacteriology, a lot of people are looking for an agent, a microbial agent, and they can't find one. It's actually um, a nutritional deficiency disease, um, mm. putting it in a nutshell. And um, it, it creates uh, widespread panic across the South and uh, among public health officials dealing with uh, the southern states. Um, and it also has, um, if I may just briefly refer to the early 1920s, which is when it really flares up again after it has actually been sort of contained for a while or um, mitigated. Um, it flares up um, after a bad harvest, after a bad winter. It's actually predicted um, by one public health service um, official. Um, who could have been the Fauci of, uh, of that mm. time, um, except um, his colleagues from the state boards of health um, from southern states are actually furious. They give him a very bad rap about, um, you know, bringing that to the public and, the, you know, as they say, creating a bad image mm. for um, their respective states. So there is a lot of, um, you know, a mixture of, uh, health officials at the same time acting as political agents, and I think that's that's something that's come up again uh, and again in, in recent, uh, you know, media discussions that I've followed. Um, what kind of, yeah, no, what kind of sources are you relying on there? You, you got state by state public health records, or are you following narratives of particular doctors, or how are you putting it together? Um, uh, well, I mostly follow specific doctors, um, and I'm particularly interested in those doctors that have been part of the military in the Spanish-American War, and that sort of use that, um, mm. you know, existing medical reputation and combine it with growing um, reputation of, of military representatives. Um, and um, I, I try to follow as many as possible across colonies, so I'm interested in how their knowledge shifts, for instance, from you know, um, being stationed in Puerto Rico to the Philippines and then to Panama. Um, and also I'm looking at um, ex-colonial officials that are now, you know, later in the early 20th century um, employed um, stateside and uh, take up various uh, offices from, you know, professional and labor health to children's health to tropical medical research, actually public health service, which is an outgrowth mm. of the military. Um, so yeah, I try to I try to put together a sample of, of doctors that I follow, and at the same time, um, you know, this I'm I'm always trying to tie the stories I tell to you know one specific disease or two in relation to each other in order to get a get a grip of the materials. And um, so I'm combining, um, especially for the first part, for the more tropical part, if you will, for the colonial part. Um, mostly uh, scientific journals, but also personal documents, letters, um, you know, administrative documents are a large part of the second part, uh, part of my dissertation, so Public Health Service, Rockefeller Foundation, um, the Sanitary uh, Commission for the Eradication of Hookworm, for instance, one of my favorites. Um, so a lot of official documents. It's not a history from below, I'm afraid. How did the American 
imperial doctors view the public health apparatus that they stepped into, the legacy of the Spanish public health, either in the Philippines or in, in Cuba? This is a question that came up. I talked to, with Cindy Ermas and Christina Fryer, had a great conversation with them two weeks ago. And, and this sort of, this question of when there's an imperial turnover and the new colonizer comes in, what's the perception of the old medical knowledge? Um, is it is somehow sympathetic, is somehow competitive, is somehow discounted? Do you encounter that question at all in your work? Yes, I do, actually. And there's been uh, quite a bit of research on that because, um, you know, the, the, the Americans are sort of late arrivals on the, uh, in the imperial arena coming in, in 1898, as they do. Um, and there is a lot of, you know, I get, I get the sense of a sort of feeling of inferiority and of having to catch up with the others. It's much like Germany in the 1880s, really. Um, and, um, and so the main idea is that the Spaniards were bad for, especially, I mean, Cuba, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, especially for the Philippines, actually. Um, the notion is that there was no sanitation in place um, in the Philippines, um, which isn't true. Um, there had been a, um, you know, the beginnings of a, of a sanitation system, a sewage system um, in Manila City um, under the Spaniards. Uh, the perception is that they were all, you know, Catholic and keep, keeping everyone, including themselves, in, in total backwardness, which um, when you look at um, sort of how bacteriological knowledge travels to the Philippines, totally is, is, is not true because mm -hmm. Um, a lot of Filipino elite members had studied in, in Spain in the 1880s and also in France and had brought back um, that the, those new insights, which were at the same time being, you know, heatedly debated within the United States. People were not sure you know, climate maybe has to do with disease causation if it's only microbes um, that are responsible um, as etiological agents. So, um, you know, there is a, a black legend being created, a legend um, about the Spaniards. Well, thank you for that. Jacob, let me come to you, uh, ask you about, um, you know, the place of pandemic in your own work. If you want to talk a little bit, or, or disease in your own work, talk about disaster citizenship or your current projects. How does your work intersect with some of the things that are unfolding in the headlines every day right now? Yeah, that's a good question. I ask myself that a lot. The, so my, my first book is about uh, two large-scale urban disasters uh, in North America in the Progressive Era. Uh, one of them is a, a citywide fire in, um, in Salem, Massachusetts in 1914 uh, the, uh, that makes about 18,000 people homeless or jobless. It, depending on sort of the source, maybe six people, six deaths are attributed to it. Um, in, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, a few years later in 1917, there's a ship explosion, uh, a, a munition ship uh, bound for World War One that kills about 2,000 people, makes about 25,000 people homeless or jobless. And my my book is really about uh, working class response to those two disasters. How did people seek to simultaneously maximize the aid that they got uh, from the state or from churches or from civil society, uh, but mostly from the state? How they try to maximize the material benefit that they got while trying to minimize what the state tried to get in return, which was authority and control over their lives. Um, and one of the, and, and so neither of, neither of those clearly are about, um, are about health uh, in, in the dissertation, actually I don't even think it made it into the dissertation version. In a very early 
version. There was a lot of, in, in Halifax, there was a lot of discussion about uh, tuberculosis. Tuberculosis was the major uh, public health crisis um, in North American cities at the time. Uh, it is actually still the major public health crisis in the world. I, I always feel like I need to say, remind people as we're thinking about one lung infection, that 4,000 people died today of tuberculosis. 4,000 people died yesterday of tuberculosis. 4,000 people will die tomorrow of tuberculosis. And this is a disease that we have known how to cure for 70 years. Mm. Uh, tuberculosis kills more people every year than HIV and malaria combined. So in some ways, thinking about tuberculosis in North America 100 years ago is um, a reminder that uh, tuberculosis uh, continues to kill vast numbers of people uh, and that the thing is that we could choose as a world we don't choose but it, uh, we could choose to uh, cure tuberculosis uh, roughly in the same way that we did uh, in North America which is making people richer and improving their houses um, that is not that's not how people with money choose to sell, try to solve tuberculosis now in poor countries uh, but anyway so there's um, a lot of uh, concern about tuberculosis, particularly in the aftermath of the Halifax explosion, mm. because there's concern about sort of weakened bodies. Uh, so one of my favorite stories that didn't make it into the book is somebody who is weak and tubercular after the explosion has kind of a nervous concern, um, neurasthenic in the, in the parlance of the time. And she gets sent out to live in the country in a tent over the summer, uh, with the with the firm instructions that she is to drink a pint of cream and a dozen eggs every day and nothing else. Uh, and and you can see, I mean, in fact, you can see why tuberculosis uh, is often experienced as a wasting disease. People lose a lot of weight; they can't keep weight on. Uh, and so, if that is what you are treating, because you don't have you don't have antibiotics yet, then you, you try to make people eat cream and milk. Uh, still, it's kind of a, it's a little bit hard to imagine that diet yeah. for a summer. Yeah. But, but, but what you can see in that is a way in which disease was, experience, was, was experienced and was treated uh, spatially. So the city is seen as unhealthy, you go to the country. Uh, in, in, in Salem, it's the, the presence of disease or the fear of disease is somewhat different. So uh, one of the things that I write about is uh, relief camps. So the, there were two, in Salem, there were two relief camps that were set up by uh, what was then called the militia, was it was about to be called the National Guard. Uh, and these were camps that were set up for kind of obvious humanitarian reasons, right? There was a, suddenly a shortage of houses because houses had burned. There were all these people who were homeless, who had, no, who had very little money because their jobs, had, their, their factories where they had worked had also burned down. So where do they live? Who has tents? Tents are, are the purview of the army, so the, the army pitches tents. But of course, what you, what you see then is uh, actually living outdoors in a camp under armed guard is not particularly pleasant for anybody. Uh, there wasn't a lot of space. You got one tent per, per family. Uh, it rained a lot of that summer, so everything was damp and muddy. And there was this pervasive fear of disease. So there are, in the newspapers, there are these constant arguments between, um, arguments isn't quite the right word. There are these constant confrontations between the militia and the residents of the camps about cleaning them up. About, and so these, these fights about control, about behavior, about comportment, 
may you throw your trash around in your own neighborhood. May you be drunk. May you, um, uh, who, who should be in charge of uh, feeding babies at night? All of, uh, what is the proper system of sanitation for going to the toilet? All of these questions about kind of how to arrange your life intimately were literally policed by these armed young men uh, with the rhetoric of public health. And that public health became one of the, the registers through which the government tried to regulate uh, people who, who needed housing. Mm -hmm. But it also worked the other way around. So uh, one of the stories in my book is about uh, a community of uh, Eastern European Yiddish-speaking Jews uh, who uh, immediately after the fire go and live on the second floor of a building above a furniture store and where the plumbing doesn't work. And so they go, they send a representative to the, to the headquarters of the relief to ask for a plumber. Someone from the army or someone from the militia comes back looks and says, this is squalid. No, but this is not fit for human habitation. This is a violate, this is going to cause disease. This is going to be a, a public health crisis. So they, so the, the government really wants the people who are living there to go into the tent, into the, into the tent city. But, but, and because that's what the state wants, the community is able to negotiate for more power in the way they're going to do it. So they, they say, well, we don't want to go, but if we're going to go, we want our own section. We want our own cook so that we can keep kosher. Mm -hmm. We want to be able to control our own little corner of the camp. And the, the concern about public health was such that they were able to extract these concessions from the state uh, in exchange. So it was, it was kind of part of this negotiation process. So pu the public health concerns uh, went both ways. Um, it's one of the things that I, I, I like talking to my students a lot about is how we like public health. Public health is important. Um, uh, my wife is an epidemiologist. She cares. I, I kind of, therefore, I'm required to care a lot about public health. But, um, but also, public health is based in, public health at its heart is about how do we get people to do things that aren't about us, they're about everybody else. Right. How do we get, when I go out wearing a mask or when I go out and stay six feet away from people, it's mostly not to protect me, it's to protect everybody else because I might be an asymptomatic carrier of COVID. So how do we get people to do these things that aren't about them, that are about somebody else? And for uh, oftentimes in the American experience, the way we force people to do things is through the threat of violence, whether that violence is physical shooting people or hitting people violence or the arresting them and putting them in a, in a cage violence. Um, but I think one of the things that disaster history and that pandemic history and other sorts of public health history can show us is ways in which we have been more successful in getting people to uh, do things for other people on the basis of solidarity and on the basis of uh, kind of we're all in this together rather than on the basis of compulsion and coercion.
I've been thinking a lot about your, your writing about Salem and the camps, and I've been thinking about Joanna Dill's work about um, San Francisco after the earthquake and other work that, that looks at these seemingly improvised spaces of relief camps. Um, but that when you, when you really dig in and analyze them, you see sort of broader social um, clashes around regulation of the public. And it's usually the people in those camps are the people who don't have means to be somewhere else in that moment. And so the camps, and I think this is true today, and the discussions that emergency managers and public health officials have about um, how best to manage relief camps after Hurricane Katrina or after Hurricane Harvey or whatever it may be. These are sites where you, you see broader societal dispute taking place. But that's vexing to me in this moment of time. I don't know how we, how we find those kinds of fault lines at this moment when everyone is basically sheltering in their own, you know, in their own domicile. I mean, we could look at homeless populations or other people who don't have the um, ability to follow public health regulations and be in their own homes. But I, I wonder, I guess a question for both of you about historical method in this particular moment. I mean, how are, how are we going to gather the data, build the archive of this particular moment in, in time? It's gonna be so different from the kind of archives that both of you have looked at, right? I mean, what, what kinds of changes do you predict in the way that historians looking back at this moment are gonna be able to work compared to what you're working on looking back? Julia, can I put that to you first and then to you, Jacob? All right. Um... Well, I guess, you know, on a very broad level, you know, the, the, the type of sources and, and again, there's a lot of inequality and privilege there, um, um, I think has shifted largely, um, especially when you look at, you know, everyday history, history from below um, has shifted or is shifting to the digital realm, which presents its own, you know, challenges um, in, in, you know, both archiving them and then also working with them, retrieving them. Um, the sheer mass of, of data that could potentially be interesting and relevant um, is just overwhelming to me right now. I mean, yeah, um, that's something I, I try to save for another day because it would just make me nervous, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, of course, in a way, you know, looking back at um, largely, you know, paper and some objects and maybe photographs, that's all limited and, um, you know, within a, a certain enclosure and, and put into neat little boxes. And I think that's something that won't really be possible anymore. Um, not just about COVID-19, but, you know, about sources from the recent years, I think. Um, something that I can tell you that has been going on um, for, a couple of weeks only, it can only be a couple of weeks, um, in Germany, in the German-speaking context, is the corona Archive. So um, an archive that's um, specifically directed at the public um, and asks people to contribute any and all sources that they deem valuable um, for, you know, keeping them and, and uh, maintaining them uh, for, for future reference. Uh, so that's photographs. I've had a brief look at the website, but to be honest, I haven't really had time to actually look at it in detail. Um, textual material, videos. Actually, that was one very interesting thing from my hometown, my uh, city of Berlin. Uh, city center, a usually very crowded space that has been, you know, filmed now uh, with a cell phone, and that's 
just empty and, and very, very quiet. So these documents that show us the before and after, I guess, mm. um, that might be something um, that would be really valuable. But then again, you know, um, being able to produce that kind of archival material, again, has, um, you know, inequality implications. Not everyone has access to that technology. And we're also talking about our students perhaps not being able to, right. you know, follow online classes, which are starting here in two weeks. Um, so that kind of uh, access issue and inequality issues that um, are relevant in this context, I think, yeah, we'll have to address them in some way, but I, you know, right now I don't have a perfect answer. Yeah, no, I think we're all groping for the answers along these, these lines. I've been thinking a lot about, I wasn't aware of that archive. Uh, what's it called again? Corona Heath. So it's like a portmanteau of Corona and Archive. Got it, Corona Archive, yeah. yeah. Uh, and Jacob, I mean, you know, thinking again about the kind of sources that you've relied upon in your work. I mean, there's sources that show solidarity, they show dispute, they show strife, they show community formation. I mean, are we producing documents like that of this time? How is the archive changing? I mean, I think, as Julia said, there's simultaneous uh, and maybe everyone feels this way whenever time they're in, but simultaneously. I mean, I worry a lot about his. Won't exist and they won't have jobs and, um, and there are lots of reasons to worry about them. But one of the reasons I worry about them is how will they deal with Twitter? How will they deal with Facebook? Will those things be a hundred years or will have technology have changed such that the things that we produce and store in the cloud are totally inaccessible. But even if they are accessible, I can't, as a century who deals with papers and who knows what I don't see, right? Because I have my archive and, and that's what's there. Imagine trying to trawl through Twitter, figure out how to use millions, billions of these short tweets. Um, the other disasters very often make things visible that, that were visible to some people before, were perhaps uh, easily ignored. So, um, I mean, and, and what these are often are about, are about class and, and gender and citizenship status and the, and the standard uh, and cleavages of society and of a but I think one of the things that we can see now uh, is who is uh, who is essential right now. What is the work that is being done? But it's not. It's it's care work. It's people who are working in hospitals, not physicians and nurses, but orderlies and personal care assistants, and people who are cleaning, and people who work in the dining halls. It's people who work in supermarkets. It's people in um, school, school lunches. It's that is about distribution and about uh, and, and delivery workers, right? So distribution and um, really explicit care workers, and those people are often uh, paid very little money, uh, performed by immigrants, people of color, women. Uh, the combinations of all those uh, women who are women of color who are immigrants, um, and I through 
at um, public archives or newspapers, right, will be able, future historians will be able to see that and to see how people, how we have started or that care becomes so obvious. How will we, looking back on where we are now, how will middle-class families rejigger the care, the informal care of their own families when schools are not, not providing childcare and parents are having to simultaneously work and childcare? Are uh, papers? Jacob, we've lost you here on our connection, I'm afraid. I, I've um, taken the, uh, the video off in the hopes that we might get a slightly better connection there. Can you still hear uh, us? Can you, can you hear? I can hear. We're dropping you out about every five to six seconds, unfortunately. Uh, my, my, so my, my is now, it was red, is now white, so perhaps is, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. It's just, unfortunately, it's kind of going in, fading in and out here a little bit. Let me see if you can, can just start to come back on, bring your video back on, and maybe that'll help us out a little bit. But I think all we right, caught... Right. Is, this, is this good? Yeah, we'll keep trying with it. It's, right. it's, yeah, but I... What I was saying is that things that disasters do is it make, um, makes questions and contestations so historians will be able to see how did we not come to terms and change to think about families uh, deal with taking care of their family their children when all of a sudden schools weren't there how domestically did that work get done uh, and I think that we, we start what what historians will do um, for the papers, um, memory, people writing about their about and in their past, uh, social workers and their and social workers notes, um, but they will also have all of the, hopefully they will have all of the social media. So um, I, I, I think we caught the, the thrust of it. Maybe we should go off video with you just for, for the remainder of time so that we can maximize the bandwidth there if we can get audio. Um, but I, I want to um, come back to, so first of all, I want to remind everybody that we're uh, talking about pandemics and history and disaster today with Julia Engelschalt and with Jacob Remus. And Julia, I want to come to you um, it's a question for both of you, really, what I want to come to you first, um, back to uh, this question of crisis as maybe a category of thinking that um, is operative in different historical settings. And you said earlier on, it's a topic you've been thinking about, sort of moments of crisis or how crisis is formed and maintained. Could you talk about that a little bit? I've actually only just started, um, you know, getting getting my reading list uh, in order and, and sort of um, working through that. Um, but what I what I can tell you, what my impression is, is that crisis as a you know as a rhetoric um, is very much um, a term that's used uh, as modernity unfolds, as there are 
states uh, in place that are able to perceive a crisis as such um, and to address it and to you know um, establish um, more or less centralized measures of sorts. Although you know when you talk to Cindy Ermes, uh, I think earlier last week. Um, she pointed out a case in the, in, in the 1700s, which um, in, in, in you know, France, uh, with a very centralized uh, effort to mitigate uh, public health problem there. So, so I was quite impressed by that because my impression was that uh, that's actually that centralizing effort um, in mitigating crisis is it should have happened later, so to speak. So um, it was interesting to see that. But um, the rhetoric of crisis, I guess actually does come in a little later. Um, and it comes in also when there are states in place that can be invoked to um, yeah, you know, help out. Um, for instance, uh, in the United States, uh, declaring a state of emergency will you know, grant you access to federal funding, as far as I know. And something similar um, is going on here. We are a federal system, and there are certain you know, things in place that under normal circumstances um, prohibit individual federal states um, to apply for government funding in certain regards. So, um, you know, calling something a crisis um, actually makes a lot of sense when there's something to get out of it. Um, and I think uh, Jacob also alluded to that earlier. Now, interestingly, you know, just to give you one example of where it doesn't show up and where it then does, um, my impression is that um, my American doctors, when they go into the tropics, they don't talk about crisis. That term doesn't really, I haven't seen it in the, in the sources. And then I thought about why that is, and my, the explanation that I've come up with is that basically um, tropical spaces, environments, and, and all the disease hazards, you know, that's basically from the perspective of white bodies coming in, and, you know, the belief is that the tropics do harm to white bodies. Um, that's a crisis, you know, that's a generalizing or generalized perception of crisis. It's a health hazard, a catastrophe just about to happen. You know, you stay there for two, two years uh, and, you know, if, if you can make it until then, mm. uh, you will get all neurasthenic and, and uh, melancholic and, you know, mentally and, and physically debilitated and whatnot. Um, so, you know, there is no need to talk about a crisis really because it's, it's there in the, in the outlook onto the tropics. Mm -hmm. But um, in, the, in, the, in the early 20th century, domestic uh, public health sphere, like I said about um, Pellagra, there are moments where, you know, the word might not be there. Um, perhaps because um, some of the incidences I'm looking at are more localized um, or treated in a more local way, um, but the a sense of urgency is certainly there, and um, a sense that you know uh, the U.S. needs um, a sort of centralized, standardized system, both in um, you know statistics but also in administration so we need to we need to know our numbers so that we can you know we know what we're actually talking about and then we need a centralized reporting system of those numbers monthly you know weekly monthly quarterly year annually um and then we need you know people to deal with those numbers largely in, in, in administrative terms mm -hmm. and do something about it so um that's a process that i can i can see is unfolding there although i think you know the rhetoric 
prices, as my colleague Christian Bollen uh, pointed out in a, in a recent uh, op-ed, um, unfortunately in Germany, um, the, you know, there is a proliferation of crisis uh, rhetoric mm -hmm. going on over the last decade. Mm -hmm. I want to stay with this theme of uh, concepts that may be traveling across time when we think about pandemic and disaster. And Jacob, I want to ask you about welfare as a as a category. You know, I mean, something I know you think about in your historical cases, but also seems to be very much maybe this is a moment of reconsideration of what the welfare state means in the United States. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, so um, there was a, a very influential book, Severnery. Uh, called the sympathetic state, Michelle mm -hmm. Dalber, who's a, a sociology, historical sociologist and law professor at Stanford, um, who makes that the U.S. welfare state was disaster relief. That um, public, uh, there were congressional appropriations that um, that that gave um, that gave direct directly to those who suffered disasters. And one of the reasons for this is that disaster, one of the things that makes a disaster is that it scrambles the category uh, of worthy and unworthy poor. Mm. That primarily um, in kind of Anglo-American history of welfare, there's this very firm distinction that people who are, which is to say who are poor through no fault of their largely because often uh, it kind of gets parsed as people who are um, or imagined to be that they can um, that they are deserving of support. They can deserve support. Sometimes they can even get cash support. The worthy Those, poor. The worthy sorry? poor. You're the saying the poor. yeah, right. It's the worthy poor. The deserving poor. Yeah. And the unworthy poor, the undeserving poor, have to be into. And one of the things that disaster big group of people who had been uh, who who can be seen as worthy poor because there's this clear event that happened that forced them into poverty. And so even now, right, we see for a, a hurricane or a tornado rather than someone who has no home because has made it so that they can't afford a home. One of those people gets disaster relief from the federal government, gets a lot of donations. The other gets uh, is homeless and put in a shelter. Mm -hmm. They're lucky. Um, and so one of the things, but so, so disaster creates more generosity. It has a whole separate infrastructure and bureaucracy of giving out aid, but then it also creates a lot more people who, who get um, put under various welfare bureaucracies. And there's all of this concern of, well, person is this person poor because of the disaster, or is this person poor because they're yeah. unworthy? And therefore, investigations of people who are not used to being investigated. Uh, so you start seeing, as we saw a few weeks ago in the United States, when there was concern about how much money people would be given uh, in, the in the first or the whatever number stimulus bill uh, it was, was it reasonable to give it out based on the 2008 or the 2007, uh, 2018, 2017 uh, 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 tax returns? How could you be sure that you were giving money to the right people? Yeah. The things that disasters allow us to do and allow us to do is say, well, maybe 
people should be getting support anyway, right? So we, we are starting to see in a much more mainstream way the idea that there should be a universal basic income. We are starting to see more uh, mainstream idea that health should be deep and uh, there should be not there should not be evictions, right? So so it it changes the because there are all of a sudden more people who need uh, support. It changes the way people imagine support. Creates new new place conflict. Mm. I want to um, I mean one of the things that it just I, I think those are great insights. One of the things that that I find always kind of challenging in telling American disaster history, and this may be applicable to Germany as well, is you have to tell, there's a federal story to tell, and then there's a state-by-state -state story to tell. And particularly when we talk about the welfare state, I mean, to me, it's, it, it's really a 50-state and seven-territorial disaster from a governance perspective in the United States. And I, and I wonder, um, you know, it's probably going to be the case that reforms to the welfare state in the U.S. are coming as part of this. Some of them may be lasting. But I think it it may be very uneven in the way that those are applied from California to New York to Alabama to, to Arkansas. Um, and I don't know, I mean, in, Julia, is there rhetoric around that in, in Germany as well? Is this somehow seen as both a national and uh, a regional disaster? Or maybe more generally, a, a German versus a more European disaster? You know, the German experience is going to be different from the Spanish experience or the the Italian experience, and that somehow speaks to the way the welfare state works or doesn't work in Europe right now. Kind of a big, that's two questions rolled in one. Right? It was four, actually. I think I lost track after three. Yeah, but, but I, I'm just trying to get to this. When we talk about crisis or welfare, we're really also talking about scale. And, and so we're talking about at what scale and who gets to weigh in um, to the provision of help or the provision of power, or however that works. Right. So, um, I mean, I guess one one thing that uh, always flusters me um, when I when I compare the U.S. and Germany and their federal systems is much less, you know, the, the administrative bureaucratic differences in the way these federal systems are set up, um, but it's actually like its size. Um, I don't see us as you know separate states mostly because, you know, from here it takes about one and a half hours and I'm in the next country. You do that in the United States, chances are you're in New Mexico or Texas, but, you know, not in, well, we don't, I don't have to give you an example of that. So um, we're small, uh, just in terms of area, um, the area that we cover. Um, although I have to say that uh, public health, just like education, falls under the, the jurisdiction of the federal state in, in mm. normal uh, time. Now, um, and then when you, when you do that upscaling move to the, to the European Union, there is no uh, EU uh, you know, unified health policy in place right now. So we are talking about that. Um, and within, I'm sure, not only Germany and the U.S., but also in other EU countries, um, we uh, are talking about uh, general uh, basic income um, and these kinds of issues. Um, I'm pretty sure that, you know, uh, perceptions of welfare and of um, EU member state solidarity are very, are very different across different member states. 
Um, so, you know, whoever from Italy, you know, was flown into a German uh, hospital mm -hmm. to get a cure for, or, you know, get, to get treated, I should say, uh, for COVID-19, I'm sure um, is, is thankful. But then again, there's a lot of uh, other things that Germany doesn't do. Also, uh, you know, the border closures of, like, outside the EU and not letting um, mm. refugees come in anymore. Um, and when you look at Southern Europe, from what I've heard on, on the radio, I think two days ago, there are there is another crisis, that is the financial crisis of 2008-9 and the following years, that sort of um, invoked and, and, and um, brought up again in a national discourse, for instance, in Greece, apparently. Um, and the, the sort of trauma associated with being treated the way these countries were treated uh, mm -hmm. by the Troika and by the, you know, the, the bailout plans, um, etc. So where was I going with that? Um, it's, it's complicated, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, I guess we're largely talking about very similar issues, albeit from, you know, I hate to say it, but uh, a, a much higher level of the kind of welfare state and you know social security and all that that that's yeah. in place over here uh, you can say it. Uh, we need to hear it over here. Absolutely. And um, if, if this moment sparks that conversation in the United States and it catches on in a real way, in a bipartisan way, that will be some small silver lining to this, this historical episode we're living through. We're almost up on time. I want to get one more question in um, to both of you, because historians are supposed to um, think a lot about beginnings and ends. We think about time. That's our, our stock in trade. And I've been thinking about this a lot too, um, how the COVID-19 story, um, how we will tell it, how it will begin. And, and all this week I've been asking guests on COVID calls to help me think a little bit about how it will end or how, how you're looking for an ending point for it. What kinds of moments would you be looking for to say, okay, this is approaching some sort of a closure or a place where we can make sense of it. Um, Jacob, I'm going to put that question to you first and then Julia to you. How will we know when COVID-19 pandemic is over? Well, so I have, I have two answers, one of which is unfathomable and one of them is, is less optimistic, uh, is also optimistic but less so. Uh, one will be, uh, point will be um, if the United States manages to have mass testing and a, a of case identification, um, contact tracing, and case isolation. Because uh, this is, of course, multiple disasters at once. There's a public health disaster. There's also an economic disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, and with that, the social disaster, the upending of everyone's lives. Um, and, and if we were to be able to do what South Korea did, which is a test who are suspected exposures, see who is sick, um, see who they have with and isolate that cluster, um, we could do that. And there is nothing but political and political economy preventing us from doing that. Uh, it is as Taiwan and South Korea show, show it is possible to do that in a democracy, uh, to do that. My impossibly optimistic answer is this ends when we do that. Mm. Um, so optimistic, but um, less so 
outrageously so version is um, when we get a vaccine and we can um, protect ourselves. And but I, I describe those both as optimistic because um, one of them I don't think will happen and the other, who knows when it will happen. You don't put Very a lot of- Long lasting. Yeah, the confidence, your confidence level in the United States, at least rolling out a rigorous testing regime is low. Obviously the vaccine production will come. So we may be looking at at least another year of this uh, going through different waves. That's how you're looking at it? Yes, well, and I, and I, I am a uh, virologist or an immunologist. Um, That's okay. But, but I am, um, I do see increasing, uh, I, I don't know, I, I think a year for a vaccine might very well be optimistic. Well, I appreciate your caution for historians to stay in their <laughs> epidemiological lane. At the same time, though, we do have responsibility in part to build on, on historical cases to understand inflection points because the way the public understands those inflection points is, as, is political. It's scientific, but it's also political. So if we can draw on historical cases to help us understand the formation of those inflection points, I think it's totally appropriate. So I, I, I learned a lot from your answer just now, and I, I appreciate that. Julia, same question to you. Well, uh, I mean, all of what Jake said, I guess, um, plus, you know, I'm, I'm thinking more in waves right now. So I'm actually mm. curious to see if it does come, like if we can actually draw that parallel to, to the 1918 pandemic. Uh, A second wave, which second some wave. people are talking about coming in October, November. Exactly. Um, also, I am curious to see how vaccine slash also treatment, uh, treatment development um, will be developing. I guess one major point now, that, like an immediate one that we're all waiting for in Germany is in fact when the question of when emergency measures will be lifted, which um, there, there is a lot of talk about that and about the sort of gradual uh, return to normalcy, whatever. Mm -hmm that is mm. supposed to be and you know whoever is actually going to benefit from that of course um all parts of the economy that are now being um you know on the verge of existential crisis if not there yet um so freelancers you know people who are not like me having their paycheck coming uh, at the end of the month and that's that so um and i guess the other thing that I'm like very personally just waiting for is um, that point in time when I can actually go see my family again. Because uh, right. you know, I might I have an immunosuppressed dad, a recent cancer survivor, there in Berlin, and there is no way I'm getting near them, um, which you know for now is fine. But that moment, I think, um, for me. And I don't think I'll be the only one, that's the thing. I think that too will sort of be a collective um, um, experience of when people will actually be able to see their loved ones again, and if they can't see right now. And that will be part of writing this history, you know, on a, on a micro historical level, if you will. Can I give you a slightly uh, more optimistic answer than the one I gave before, Scott? Yeah, you, you've had a couple of minutes to have your faith in humanity restored. Maybe by Julia's amazing answer she just gave about the need to 
restore yeah. human contact. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's it's that I, I actually think that when we when future historians periodize, my hope is that this is the that this is the inflection point. And like all periodization, there won't be a particular day. But that in, in the same way that we as his, that I as a historian of the United States, you and I as historians, of the, I guess all three of us are historians of the United States, can look back and, and our main task, I think, as historians of the modern US is to say, how did we get to the point where we have such great racial disparities in uh, both COVID infection and COVID fatalities? How did we get to the point where we were, don't have any production of uh, N95 masks in the United States? How did we get to the point where the people mm -hmm. who do this crucial labor of taking care of us and keeping us alive are so ill-paid and so precarious, right? That's, how did we get to the point where we have a malevolent clown as president? That's the story that historians can tell now. And I hope, my optimistic answer is that historians of the future will say, oh, well, there was this terrible post war, neoliberal, whatever you want to say, moment in which the United States tried to destroy itself. But then there was this turning point that we, that we look back on as the COVID pandemic. Hmm. And that's when the ship started to right itself. That's when they started to realize and they started to organize and they started to restore the capacity of the country to take care of itself, the political capacity to govern itself, the social capacity to take care of itself. Uh, so my optimism is looking at my students and looking at the conversations that they're having and the way that they are thinking about what is necessary and how to take care of each other and themselves. And I hope that they take this experience that's going to shape their adult lives mm. and, uh, and rebuild something that is um, more sus sustainable, more sustainable. Yeah, the continuity that I'm hearing in the urgency of discussion around climate change, even in this moment, is also giving me that hope as well. I'm really seeing um, a lot of people sticking on the case um, not to see this disaster somehow separated from the other disasters, slow disasters of poverty, um, of climate change, and, the, and the, the ways that they actually compound and exacerbate each other. I can't imagine a more optimistic way actually to end this really extraordinary week of discussions, uh, Jacob, with your clarion call to actually have a little faith in the rising generation and the political economy to write itself. It's going to be a whole new section in the textbook, that's for sure. Um, and Julia, you're um, sharing with us the, the need to have that sort of reaching out. The disaster ends at the moment that we can reconnect in ways that we've seen um, to be crucial to keep our humanity and all this. I want to thank Julia Engelschalt and Jacob Remus for um, spending time with us uh, today to talk about pandemics and to talk about disaster and to talk about history. And I want to remind everyone that uh, the COVID calls takes place every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And on Monday, we have Esther Chernak to give us an update on public health in the United States. And also Howard Conrather of the Wharton uh, Risk Decision Science Center to talk about risk analysis and human psychology. Thank you both for being with me today. Thank you so much. Thanks for putting up with my bad bandwidth. No, it all came back at the end and it sounded great. Thank you very much and stay healthy, everyone. Goodbye. Bye.